If you have a Bible with you, let me encourage you to open up to the book of Acts. We're in Acts chapter 19 this morning, and the title for this sermon is Extraordinary Miracles. Acts chapter 19, we'll be looking at verses 11 through verse 20, and the title again is Extraordinary Miracles. So, so glad that we could be together this morning to sing together, to worship together, to be recipients of God's amazing grace, and uh, we look forward to diving in to God's word here. And so Luke writes in in, um, Acts 19, starting in verse 11, he writes, and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom this, the evil spirit, uh, and, and the man in whom was the evil spirit, leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver." So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to open your word this morning and to read this most interesting and profound text in Acts chapter 19, that we would learn even more about your word, about your power, about healing, about exorcism, about what you were doing in this text to promote and and to, uh, to proclaim the lordship of Jesus Christ over sickness, over demons, over death, over all things because of the superiority of the divine Lamb of God who died in our place to give us eternal life. We extol the Lord Jesus this morning as we come and as we listen and as we pray that you would apply your word in our hearts in a way that would affect change in us today. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, sometimes when you read the Bible, you kind of get the idea that there's miracles happening all the time. You know, we kind of open the Bible, we expect divine things to happen, and they do. But actually, they don't happen all the time, all through the Scripture. The truth is, in biblical history, there are only three special periods of time where miracles were performed with a certain amount of frequency. That was during the time of Moses, when you think about all that Moses did as he delivered the Israelites out of Egypt and they crossed the Red Sea and through the wilderness. There was another period of time that was during the time of Elijah and Elisha, where all kinds of miracles were performed. An axe head floated. Uh, there was uh, the chariot that came to pick up Elijah. Elisha did many ver- various miracles uh, during that time. And then the third time in history, biblical history, where we see a lot of free-flowing miracles was obviously the time of Jesus 
and the time of the apostles during that first hundred years or so of the early church. And so each of these are three major miracle-working periods that in each of these times, the time of, of Moses, the time of Elijah and Elisha, and the time of Jesus and the apostles were about a hundred years each. So about a hundred years, hundred years, hundred years, that's when the, there was a lot of miracles mentioned in the Bible. And outside of those three periods of time, we don't read a whole lot about extraordinary miracles happening. In fact, the total number of miracles recorded in Scripture for all three of those periods is less than 100. And of course, not all the miracles were recorded. You might remember in the Gospel of John at the end, chapter 20, verse 30, where it says, and Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. So certainly there may have been many other miracles that were indeed performed that were not recorded in the Scripture. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, and I want to reiterate this point, that when Jesus performed miracles, he had at least three purposes in mind. He, He wanted to show compassion and to meet human needs. He wanted to teach a spiritual truth, and he wanted to also present his credentials as the Messiah. And the apostles followed in that same pattern in their miracles. In fact, the ability to do miracles was one of the proofs of the apostolic ministry. Mark 16, 20 says, And they went out and preached everywhere, while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. We read in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. And so we know the fact that many of the miracles that happened that came at the hands of the apostles is evidence that they indeed were being authenticated, that they had been appointed by Christ, that they were speaking and preaching the truth, and God did special miracles through them. And that's what's happening here. God enabled Paul here in Acts 19 to perform extraordinary or special miracles. And I think part of the reason for that is because Ephesus, if you remember the context, the city where this passage takes place, was a center for false teaching. It was a center for immoral living. It was a center of idolatry. And so here in Acts 19, we see Paul demonstrating God's power over evil in the devil's backyard we could say. He's infiltrating that area and demonstrating the supremacy of Christ over all things. But keep in mind that wherever God's people minister the truth, Satan often sends a counterfeit to oppose the work. This was true of Moses when he had his brother cast down the staff. Some of us are doing our Bible reading, maybe read that this very week in Exodus uh, where Moses uh, had Aaron cast down his staff. It became a snake. The Egyptian uh, magicians ended up trying to do something similar. You can read about that in Exodus 7. Uh, there was the, there, the, this was true of Philip when Philip, uh, the deacon, did signs in Samaria. There was a magician named Simon who tried to do the same thing. In Acts 8. And now we have it here with Paul in Ephesus when we're going to read a little bit about these seven sons of Sceva who saw what Paul was doing and then they try to emulate the same thing that Paul was doing. What I'm saying is that Satan often imitates, or at least he attempts to imitate, uh, whatever God's people are doing because he knows that the unsaved will not be able to tell the difference. An unsaved person is not able to have that kind of discernment to know, is this of God or is this of the devil? 
1 Corinthians 2.14 says so much that the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. The natural person being the unsaved person. They're not able to see and understand the things of God for their folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned, meaning they're not spiritually capable yet to really see with great clarity, an unsaved person, the difference between their work of God or their work of the devil. Well, let me ask you that question this morning. How are you doing this morning? Do you know the difference between the work of God and the work of the devil, the work of truth and the work of counterfeit? Do you know the difference between the wheat and the tares? Do you know the difference between the miracles of Christ and the magic of a charlatan? Do you know the difference between the truth of God's word and the lies of the devil? Do you know the difference between bona fide Christian faith and the farce of a false prophet? Do you know the difference between the authenticity of God's power and the scam of Satan's illusion? Well, this morning, I want us to look at five headings that will help us see the difference between the two and that will give great impact to our hearts this morning as we study a little bit about these extraordinary miracles that Paul was performing all by the power of God. And those five headings listed there for you are in your outline are number one, extraordinary miracles, and then we'll look at exercising demons, number three, extolling Christ, number four, eradicating evil, and then number five, expanding expanding God's kingdom. So let's start with our first heading, if we can, Extraordinary Miracles, also the title for our message this morning, verses 11 and 12. And that first blank, if you are taking notes, says genuine healing, genuine healing. Look at verses 11 and the first part of verse 12. It says, and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried to the sick and their diseases and their diseases left them. So last time we were together, we looked at how Paul was speaking boldly to the Ephesians. He was reasoning with them and persuading them about the kingdom of God. And for two years, the first part of Acts 19 says, He was preaching there to all the residents, and all the residents of Asia also heard the word of the Lord. Paul was an, he was an apostle, but he was also, as we mentioned last week, a expositor. He, he, He preached the word faithfully. And not only was Paul preaching the word, as we studied last week, but this week we see that Paul, through the power of God, is doing extraordinary miracles, So he preached the word and he backed up what he said with the power that God worked in him and through him to do extraordinary miracles through this radically transformed man. In fact, the passage here talks about those extraordinary miracles at the hands of Paul. Verse 12 says that even these handkerchiefs and these aprons were used, if they had just touched the skin of Paul, they could be used to be given to those who were sick and they could be healed. And some people think that Maybe there's some type of special power in these inanimate objects, but the handkerchiefs and the aprons were just tangible objects which people used. It wasn't the apron or the handkerchief that healed people. It was the power of God that healed people from their diseases. And these objects had no magical power or miraculous power in themselves whatsoever. 
Now, I don't know how much you keep up with the world today or what's happened in our world in the 90s and in the early 2000s, but there's been all kinds of modern-day faith healers that have tried to imitate this occurrence by giving objects that have, that have healing powers for a suggested donation. That There have been faith nails There have been miracle medals that have been sold, special anointing oil. There's been prayer candles, prayer rugs, and prayer cloths, which supposedly have been provided by these various ministries through these faith healers with power to heal. And what I want to know this morning is how many of you guys have purchased that? You've purchased that. You, you don't have to show your hand. You're like, I am not raising my hand for that one, for sure. But it's kind of amazing when you just think about what in the world? Like, what in the world is going on where people will see something like that and then be, be motivated to buy that from them to somehow, if they get that, it'll be a special blessing on them. And that would just be an example of taking a passage like this way out of context, a passage like this and say, well, Paul did it, so can I do it, and if you buy it from me, you'll have a special healing for, you, for, for yourself today. I mean, some faith healers have claimed to have healed thousands of sick people while there has been no documented proof. Uh, just for the record, let me be clear, I believe that God can and does heal people. What I'm saying is that it's not always tied to a specific man or woman or a specific ministry. God can heal anytime he wants. But the problem is many of these faith healers have claimed to be the healer themselves. And they've claimed to have healed thousands of people, even though there's no real proof. And by, by documented proof, I mean someone who has objectively diagnosed a medical problem that's been demonstrated, not just a symptom, but a true diagnosis of a medical problem, who then would be healed at a healing meeting in a way that then they could document objective healing without, without any uh, subjective bias influence. In fact, one well-known faith healer hired an insider to create a documentary to make him look more genuine. And after working hard to come up with a good story, the hired hand could not find one complete record that would suit the criteria of a true miracle, which were these three things. Number one, documentation that proves the illness existed. Because, you know, anybody can come up and say, oh, I have a tumor. I have a headache. I have a backache. I have whatever. But that's just somebody, you're taking somebody's word for it. So in order to be qualified, this researcher was doing, you have to have a documented case that proves the illness existed. Number two, documentation that proves that an instant supernatural change took place. So that's key, instant and supernatural uh, change took place. And then number three, documentation that proves that the illness is now 100% gone. And you say, well, where did they get those three qualifications from anyway? Well, how about from the Bible? That's, how, that's what healing looked like in the New Testament. Anytime you read about healing in the Bible, it's always immediate. There's not this idea of like, oh, well, I started getting better over time. I mean, many times the, the body can work like that, right? Many of you have been ill or you've been sick for maybe some unknown cause, maybe a known cause, and then all of a sudden, somewhere in that sickness or illness, you started getting better. But you probably weren't instantly better. Like, you probably didn't go from a state of extreme weakness and sickness to instant 100% health. But in the Bible, it was always immediate. It, it was always complete, It wasn't like it was still in process, but it was a completed action in the Bible, so far as we can tell, that illness never came back. 
When, when somebody was healed, when somebody who was blind could see, they were lame, they could walk, they had leprosy, they were healed. They, you know, they might have died later of something else. I get that. But they didn't get the same disease again. They, they were healed immediately, completely. It never came back. And the glory was always given to God. It was always about God's glory. It always somehow probably to the most degree in context, if you look at these, pointed to the preaching of the gospel, to the word of God. That's what healing in the Bible uh, looks like. The healing in a lot of the faith healer services today looks nothing like that. It's very subjective. It's very slight of the hand. It's very come and go. And, and it's not really a proven thing. I, I remember years ago I worked when I worked uh, in the secular world, I was a, a physician's assistant, I worked for a heart surgeon, and the heart surgeon told me that his maid there in the house uh, that, that where he and his family lived um, had, had a real bad back problem. And he told me one day, he said, hey, do you believe in healing? And I'm like, yeah, you know, we're sitting there operating on the heart. He's like, do you believe in healing? I'm like, well, we're trying to heal this heart right now, but it's not us, it's God doing it. But you know, he's like, well, my maid has, um, has a really bad back problem. She said that there's a service in town and a healer is here and she's been going to that service and she told me that she went up last night and got prayed for and she's been healed. What do you think about that? And I'm like, well, look, I, I don't know for sure because you know, he knew I was... Um, studying God's word, and he was like a, a nominal Christian, if I could say it that way. You know, so he's like, what do you think about that? And I'm like, well, I don't know. I know God heals people. I certainly have my doubts about healing services, and I also don't know all the facts around the lady that works for you, and uh, so I would, I would be interested to learn more, but if God did heal her, then praise the Lord. I'd be the first one to celebrate, thank God. And then I remember, I, I didn't think much about it, and a few months later, he told me, he's like, oh yeah, um, my maid uh, had back surgery this week. Uh, the healing didn't last after all, and she went through this massive back surgery. And I think that's really the story of a lot of people. They get emotionally excited. They want to believe it's so bad. They think that maybe they're better, but in reality, nothing's really changed. Now, again, I'm just saying that's where some people take that kind of thinking from a text like this and try to modernize it. But what's happening in this text is something totally different than that. This is healing that took place by the power of God by an apostle who had been authorized to, to preach the word and to perform healings, all to point to Christ, to point to the glory of God, and to point to saving faith. And not only do we see Paul healing, well, that's really not something brand new to us, but a little bit more in this message, we're going to get into your second point there, which is definite exorcism. Definite exorcism. Not only was there divine healing that really did happen here, documented by the verification that Paul's given a genuine healing, but there is also, there are also some definite exorcisms going on at the very end of verse 12, where it just says there, not only were they being healed and when, the, when their skin was touched with the uh, handkerchief, but it says, and the evil spirits came out of them. So that's another phrase there pointing to where not only was there healing, but there were evil spirits and these evil spirits came out of them in the same way that the healing was taking place. Now, there are at least five legitimate exorcisms performed by Jesus in the Gospels. Just to kind of review, to kind of lead us up to this particular exorcism, there's five clear ones that Jesus did. And remember in the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, some of them are mentioned a couple of times, but it's referring to the same event, which is number one, these five legitimate exorcisms, is the unclean spirit in the synagogue at Capernaum. 
You could read about that in Mark 1, 23 to 26. But there was the casting out of an unclean spirit at the synagogue in Capernaum. Number two, the demon that Jesus had cast out, which made a man mute. So there was a man that was mute. Jesus cast the demon out. The man could then speak. That's in Matthew 17, 17 and 18. Matthew 17, 17 and 18. Number three, there is the Gerizim demoniac possessed by a legion of demons who were then cast into the swine. That's a popular one in Mark chapter five, verses eight through 13. Mark five, eight through 13, the Gerizim demoniac. Again, the demons were cast out into the swine. Number four, the Syrophoenician woman's daughter, the Syrophoenician woman's daughter, Matthew chapter 15, verses 22 to 28, that speaks of that occasion. And then number five, the boy with an epileptic, epileptic spirit, the boy with an epileptic spirit in Luke 9, 40 through 44, there's an exorcism that Jesus performed. So if you go back and study the gospels, you'll see at least five very clear exorcisms that Christ performed. There are also two clear accounts of demon exorcism outside of the gospels. So five in the gospels, two outside of the gospels. The first was the slave girl in Philippi in Acts 16, 16 through 18. And we studied this one a few months back. And as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us crying out, these men are the servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. So that would be the sixth exorcism, five in the Gospels. This is one outside of the Gospel. And the one that we're looking at this morning is the second one outside of the Gospel. And when I say the one we're looking at this morning, I just mean this reference to the handkerchief that touched people and the demons left them, where it says there again at the end, verse 12, and the evil spirits came out of them. Now, while demon possession and exorcism in the Bible was real and legitimate. It's like I'm saying that there was real sickness, real healing, there was real demon possession and real demon exorcism as we're reading about here in the New Testament. It is interesting that in the same way that faith healers try to heal today in this, you know, and, and try to kind of tap into this, there's a lot of exorcists that claim to have the same ability. There's a lot of faith healers or, or miracle workers that would claim to be exorcists who have been given special power by God to be able to cast out demons. In fact, I read an article recently that said how to perform a Christian exorcism. And it gives, this author gave 16 steps that you need to do in order to do that. Number one, know the symptoms if there's demonic possession. Number two, get connected to the access of the power of the Holy Spirit. Number three, humble yourself. Number four, if you've never been baptized, get baptized fully immersed in water in God's name as a public declaration in front of others. Number five, love others. I <laughs> appreciate that. Just love people. That's good. I think it's saying, hey, get your character right in order to step into this kind of warfare. But number six, if you have, if you have the power of the Spirit of God living in you and you know his word, you're ready to proceed. Number seven, command the demon to be silent in the name of Jesus. Number eight, 
If you are not sure that you do have the power of the Spirit living in you, then instead of commanding the demons directly, it is much safer to ask Jesus to command the Spirit to be silent for you. Okay, so if you're not sure, don't be so bold, but ask that Jesus, they, they, they follow your command in Jesus' name. Number nine, using the demons' names, command him to leave the victim by name in the name of Jesus. Number 10, don't do this alone. Number 11, begin to worship God. Number 12, boldly and out loud, lay your hands on everything that you wish to be sanctified and pray over these things. Number 13, if it seems that the demon came back or never left, do not be fooled. Number 14, be aware that if the person being freed does not give their life to Jesus, the evil spirits can return and bring their friends Number 15, there are many entry points that give demons legal rights to enter or re-enter you. And then number 16, remember that Jesus resisted the devil three times with the word of God in Matthew 4. Now, when you read that, the question is, well, what do you think about that? You know, I mean, some of us laugh and giggle a little bit, and others are like, you know, I appreciate the sincerity of at least this person wants to fight for God. I mean, isn't spiritual warfare something we should all be involved in as Christians? And so there's different views, again, on, well, what do you think about exorcism? And so all we can do is take, well, what does the Bible say? And, and what, how do we understand from the Scripture what was happening then and what should be happening now? And the apostles and their close associates were given, um, they were given special power by God to perform exorcisms as needed but if you want me to just lay my cards on the table, I, I don't see this happening and being validated today. Now, again, I, I'm not saying that someone can't be demon-possessed. I believe they can be demon-possessed. And I'm not saying that the demon could be uh, gotten rid of. I think that the demon could be gotten rid of. What I'm saying is I don't believe a, a certain man or a certain woman has a special ministry to proclaim and to uh, command demons to come and go based on some of the steps that we just read through. I, I think that that's an apostolic ministry performed by the apostles in a special way, and, and I'm saying that certain people, I don't think, have the same power or ability to do that today, meaning it's not like um, that, that we should have a ministry of exorcism where people are known to come. It's not listed, by the way, uh, as a spiritual gift, so if you go through all the spiritual gift lists while there is speaking in tongues and interpreting tongues, and we've spoken about that many times here, there's, not, there's nothing mentioned as like, oh, you have the spiritual gift of exorcism. It's not listed in the Bible such as such. In fact, I alluded earlier to 2 Corinthians 12, 12, that talked about how the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience with signs and wonders and mighty works. And so there are certain, I would say, sign gifts that were given especially to the apostles and maybe a few close associates that they were to perform these signs and wonders and mighty works during the apostolic age and that these same sign gifts were not intended to continue all the way down to today. I mean, the truth is, I do not see any clear teaching in the New Testament of how to do exorcisms appropriately. We see examples of it being done but no one and nowhere in the scripture does it teach, now you go and do likewise. 
Jesus did this, Jesus did this, Paul did this, and then we get into the New Testament and it emphasizes more about your Christian life and your Christian character and your Christian works of worship and service. And it doesn't mention, and you need to be doing exorcisms. You know, it says you need to be preaching the gospel, you need to be loving one another, you need to be baptized, you need to be part of a local church, and, and, and there's all that we are very familiar with in the New Testament because it's written over and over, and it all is extremely clear. When it comes to exorcisms, there's just nothing said about it. Nowhere is there didactic instructions given to Christians today of how to perform exorcisms. And so, because that's lacking in the scripture, I'm saying that I don't believe that that's a, a ministry that we should be expected to perform today. I, I think that our focus should be more on gospel ministry than on the ministry of exorcism. Now, here in America, we don't see this like all the time. But if you've traveled to third world countries or you've done mission work or you interact with different nations out there, I'm just saying there is a higher, uh, there's a higher tendency for demon possession and conversations about this that happen a lot outside of, of, uh, of our context here in America. And a lot of people ask questions about that. Well, why, why is it that uh, you know, out there there's like more demon stuff going on, but here in America we don't see that all the time? And, uh, and I would say to you, you know, America and, and, uh, and the other countries have all kinds of stuff going on all the time. It's possible that in the States that we don't think of it so much as demon possession as mental health issues. I'm just saying it's just possible. It's possible that there are mental health issues. And again, I'm not saying everybody who struggles with mental health is demon possessed. Please don't uh, think that's what I'm saying. I'm just saying there are some extreme mental health patients that I believe struggle spiritually with what's going on. And they have chosen to reject Christ, many of them, reject the gospel, open themselves up to other forces and other powers. And I've done uh, some time in mental health hospitals, not as a patient, all right? But as a, P, as, a, as a PA, I worked in a mental health hospital for six weeks and I saw extraordinary things happen. I saw all kinds of cursing and spiritual conversations and fights. I mean, it was like a war zone at times. Lots of straitjackets holding people down, giving Haldol. I'm like, man, this is a pretty exciting field. I don't think I want to go into it. You know, it's just like, it's just really, I'm not saying all day, every day it's like that, but it happens. You're there long enough, all of a sudden you're like, oh my word, you know, what is going on? And I would just say that I think some of what's happening there, there can certainly be true organic illness. And when it's demonstrated and proven organically, then we want to treat it with whatever we can treat it with, right? But there are times where there is no explanation. There's no organic cause. There's nothing we can see. And just the way I've personally heard of spiritual comments about Christ, about God, about the devil, in such a way, I'm like, man, there's got to be something spiritual going on here. This is not just total, you know, organic. There are spiritual things happening. Another area that people get interested in about demon activity would be UFOs, you know, unidentified flying objects, what's going on, There's, could there be some kind of alien involvement, some type of paranormal activity. I'm just simply saying there's a lot of spiritual warfare that's going on, and so the question would say, well, what, what are we to do about spiritual warfare? Well, I'm glad you asked. Turn with me to Ephesians 6. If you want to read a strong, clear passage that will ground you, because I'm not trying to freak you out this morning, you know, unlike the youth pastor from last week, I'm not trying to preach a series on scary stories from the Bible and then, uh, you know, make you really afraid this morning. I'm just saying, like, what do we do with all this stuff? Well, Ephesians 6 would be probably one of the best go-to passages to go to because this is acknowledging spiritual warfare is real. Finally, 
Ephesians 6.10, Paul writes, finally, remember he's writing to Ephesus, the same place where Acts 19 takes place, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might and put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So what are we to do about it? Verse 13, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. And then as you well know, he goes into the six pieces of the armor of God and tells us at the end of that passage that we need to be prayed up. And I would just say to you, that's an excellent passage to go to if you wanna think through, well, how do I handle these situations in spiritual warfare? I would say run to Ephesians 6 and, 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 and think through and pray through and live out these truths that we read throughout putting on the armor of God. In fact, if you were to say to me, push me a little further and say, well, Adam, what would you do? If you were all of a sudden, I mean, you're a pastor, you, you said you've been around crazy situations. What if you were in a situation where it appeared to you that someone was truly demon-possessed, they're in your office, someone called you to come to their home, and, 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 and someone's out of control, what would I do? I would call 911. That's what I would do. That's the first thing I would do. I'm not saying I wouldn't go and I wouldn't bring a Bible and be ready to pray. I'm getting that in a minute. But the first thing I would do is if there's a situation that's out of control, like what you would think about, you know, like, oh, there's demon possession, I would say, call 911. Because we, honestly, we don't know what's going on. That erratic behavior could be from a demon. It could be from some other organic cause. If that person is of potential harm to themselves or someone else, I'm all in favor of getting authorities involved and getting medical help to, to start with. At the same time, if I was brought into that situation, I would say that my objective would be to share the gospel with them. That would be my objective. My objective would not be like, I command you in the name of Jesus, you must flee. What is your name? You know, you, you see all this stuff that I just read about. What is your name? And name the name and claim it and name it. And this, I just like, that, that just, that wouldn't be my approach. My approach would be like, hey, can you tell me what's going on? What are you struggling with? What do you think's going on inside of you? And if I couldn't have a rational conversation, then I would say, you know what, can I just pray for you? And maybe tomorrow we could talk again. You know, if they're going to the hospital, then I could maybe visit with them in the hospital once things have calmed down a little bit. My objective would be to preach Christ. My objective would be to evangelize the lost. My objective would be that when that person, if they were to pray and repent and receive Christ as their savior, I think it's at that moment that the demon would leave them as they now would become inhabited by the Holy Spirit. And so my objective would not be pull a power play on them, my objective would be to appeal to them through the gospel and to ask them to come to Christ. And again, if they reject that, I may not be able to really help them. I can pray for them and encourage them, but I wouldn't approach it as an exorcist kind of way. All right, We're gonna, we got a little bit more on it, but let's move on. Second major heading, exercising demons. Exercising demons, here we see a, the problem. What's the problem with how it's handled here in this particular passage? It says, then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the name of Jesus whom Paul proclaims. And so these, again, notice the text says they're itinerant Jewish exorcists. 
That's to make sure you understand, obviously, these were not believers of the Lord Jesus Christ. The fact that they were itinerant gives you the idea that this group is traveling from place to place to place, and they're trying to somehow tap in to this power that they have seen Paul and possibly earlier Jesus uh, work in. And so these men, uh, these men are these false Jewish uh, Exorcist. They followed again in the line of, of Simon Magnus that we talked about in Acts 8. There was also another man by the name of Bar Jesus, also known as Elymas, in Acts 13. And we talked about how there's a special interest in some of these guys to get part of this, uh, get in on the action. Uh, the NASB. New American Standard says, instead of itinerant, they went from place to place. Again, finding the idea also that might be they weren't finding success. So once they showed up to one place and tried to do their thing and it's not working, they go to another place, another place, another place. But what they're doing here in Ephesus is they're trying, verse 13, they're trying to invoke the name of Jesus. This means that they are using the name. They are pronouncing the name. There is no evidence here of saving faith. There is nothing in the text here that, sh that tells about how these Jewish exorcists came to Christ. Instead, they simply wanted to use the name of Christ for their own selfish gain. They, they were, in a sense, breaking the third commandment of using the Lord's name in vain. The word exorcist here in verse 13 is a transliteration of the Greek word, and it's the idea of casting out. It is, it is only found here, the exorcist word, is only found here in the New Testament. It derives from a, from a root word, which can also mean to bind with an oath. And so ancient exorcists attempted to expel demons by invoking the name of a more powerful spirit being. Exorcists were somewhat common in the ancient world and even among the Jews. The problem is, is that they did not know Jesus. They just want spiritual power and they were really more of a spiritual shadow, but there was no real spiritual life dwelling inside of these exorcists. They were dead, spiritually speaking. They were depraved. They were in defiance against Christ and against the gospel. They didn't bow the knee and repent and become believers. They just used the name of Jesus to their own advantage. And what's ironic here is that the gospel uh, of Matthew talks about how the Jews accused Jesus of using Satan's power in order to cast out demons. Remember that back in Matthew 12, 26, they accused Jesus of that. And Jesus' response to them was that if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself, how then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, another name for Satan, if I cast out, Jesus said, demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? In other words, if you're accusing me, Jesus is saying, of casting out demons by the power of Satan, which Jesus was not, then by whom do your sons cast them out? Jesus is in effect saying, you shouldn't accuse me of doing that because I'm actually accusing you of doing that. And so if you apply that logic to Acts 19, it's like, hey, these guys are, you know, are acting in Satan's power. They're not acting in Christ's power. Again, the Jewish exorcists of Acts 19 are trying to invoke the name of Jesus over those with evil spirits, but it's not working because there's no real power. They are saying things like, I adjure you by the name of Jesus whom Paul proclaims. They are saying, we command you or we demand you to come out. 
And these false exorcists tried to attach themselves to the Lord Jesus and to the Apostle Paul in their feeble attempts. And the problem is, is that they did not know Jesus and they had no power that had been delegated to them because they were not apostles. In fact, let's look at the next verse, verse 14, and read about the attempt, your next blank, the attempt that they make. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. And so these, again, are seven sons of this Jewish high priest. There, there are no records, by the way, of a high priest that we know of by the name of Sceva, who was a legitimate, bona fide Jewish priest that had been recognized. That, that's not even recognized in Jewish history, which causes doubt, again, to the legitimacy of their effort if they weren't even sons of a high priest by that name. And even if they were sons of of a high priest, apparently they had not yet become adopted sons of God. So it doesn't matter that you're the son of a high priest. If the high priest doesn't know God, no matter what kind of Jewish heritage he has, he's not a true follower of Christ. I'm saying to you that these guys are false teachers. And false teachers are mentioned being involved in this kind of activity. Even in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3 through 5, describes false teachers in this way. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and quarrels about words which produce dis envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. That would be maybe an explanation of what's going on. False teachers wanting to make a buck by becoming popular, by claiming they're priests, sons of the high priest, and somehow they're going to be exercising demons. And so now let's look at the result, your next blank, the result, verses 15 and 16. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? You kind of get the idea right there in that moment, like, oh, shoot. <laughs> like, this isn't going the way we thought. Like, we're not going to pull it off this time, this charlatan activity, because this demon uh, was very aware of what was going on. And so what we read then in verse 16, and the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. So these Jewish exorcists may have fooled for a time, the Ephesians, but they did not fool the demon himself. The demon knew that the seven sons of Sceva had no authority over him. And speaking through the voice of the human victim, he scornfully said, the demon said through that victim, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? When he says, Jesus I know, the word in the original language, gnosko, it means to know by interaction to know by experience, to have a little bit more of an intimate knowledge. And you say, well, what, what do you mean? How does the demon know Jesus to that degree? Well, think about it. Demons knew Jesus from before the world was created. Demons knew Jesus when they were kicked out of heaven together with Satan himself. And guess who was in heaven? There was God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And so Christ existed in, the, in, in, in eternity past, and the demons would have already known from that 
from that experience exactly who Jesus was. And then throughout scripture, we know that demons knew who Jesus was because Jesus uh, performed the exorcisms that I mentioned earlier, those five exorcisms. And Jesus, when he did that, sometimes the demons would talk back to him, like in the case of Matthew 8, 28 and 29, it says, and when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gerardines, which is the same thing as the Gerizines in, in the Mark's gospel. But two demon-possessed met him, coming out of tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, what have you to do with us, O son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? So these demons knew something. When, when Jesus showed up, they were like, hey, what are you gonna do to us, O son of God? Are you gonna torment us before our time? It's almost as if they know they're going back to hell. They know they're going to be destroyed uh, ultimately in the lake of fire. And they knew exactly who Jesus was from eternity past, from some of these exorcism. Another exorcism where they talked back was in Luke 4, 41. And the demons also came out of many crying, you are the son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. So I'm just saying that these demons now back to Acts 19, when they say, hey, Jesus, we know, they were well acquainted with Jesus as the son of God. And then they say, Paul, I recognize. That word recognize means to more to know about or to understand. It's knowledge to a lesser degree. So Jesus, they know with great degree. Paul, they know to a lesser degree. But the demon did not know the sons of Sceva. They didn't know him. They they didn't know these seven sons. And so what happened? Verse 16 again, he leaped on them. He mastered or had power over all of them. He overpowered or controlled them so that they ran away naked and wounded. Some translations say naked and bleeding. There are other passages of scripture that talk about the unequal strength of a demon-possessed person, like in Mark 5, 3 through 5, where it talks about the man who lived among the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces and no one had strength to subdue him night and day among the tombs and the mountains. He was always crying out, cutting himself with stones. So we read in other places, there was this enormous power that a demon gave, if you will, when it inhabited in a person and that demon of this person beat up on. So what happened to these seven sons of Sceva? Well, these, these boys got a beat down. I mean, that's what happened. They just got beat up. This is like a bad bar fight gone bad where this one guy just takes care of business. You know, you see those movies, there's like this one ex-Marine and he's sitting there at the bar. Somebody comes up and you're like, oh no, that guy's about to get it. That's what happened. These guys just got totally demolished. It's just interesting how this happens. F.B. Meyer, well-known commentator, was, uh, wrote an amusing comment on this. He writes this, quote, when the seven sons of Sceva started on the demon, he turned on them and said, you little dwarfs, you Lilliputians, who are you? I know Paul, I don't know you, I have never heard of you before. Your name has never been talked about down in hell. No one knows you, nor about you outside of this little bit of space called Ephesus. So in other words, you know, Meyer is hinting at these demons were really kind of mocking the situation. And then on a far more serious note, uh, F.B. Meyer writes this. He says, yes, there is the question that was put to me today. Does anyone know of me down in hell? 
Do the devils know about us? Are they scared about us? Are they frightened by us? Or do they turn upon us when we preach on Sunday or when we visit in the streets or take our Sunday school class? The devil says, I don't know you. You are not worth my powder and shot. You can go on doing your work. I am not going to upset hell to stop you. So he's just writing. Ever thought about that? Like, is your name known in hell? Like, if these demons are aware of Jesus to the intimate degree, they're aware of Paul to a lesser degree, are they aware of you? And it's kind of the question, I don't have an answer to that question, but the question is, are you doing damage for the kingdom? Because if you're a mighty warrior for the kingdom's sake, it seems like there may be some awareness of who you are, whereas if you're kind of like this lukewarm person, which Jesus says I would spew out of my mouth, then they may not be aware of who you are. And that's what's happening to these seven sons of Sceva. He's like, well, I don't know who you guys are. You, you, don't have, you haven't registered in hell. You're not doing any sp- true spiritual work. I mean, have you ever thought about it that way? Does anyone know you down in hell? Are any of the demons scared of you because they know that you proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ? They know that you abide in Christ and he abides in you. And and do they know that you are a force to be reckoned with because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world? Interesting question. Well, how about in your own power, Certainly, we need to acknowledge today that if we were to approach a situation like this in our own power, I believe we would get squashed just like these seven sons of Sceva. We would be squashed by Satan and his minions. You you don't have the ability, if, if we learn anything from this, you don't have the ability to do spiritual warfare on your own. You can't attack Satan on your own strength or your own traditions. You have to come to Christ You have to become an overcomer in Christ. You have to first become saved, born again, and then live for Christ and exercise the spiritual power that God gives you. And we read about that in certainly Romans 8, 37 through 39. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, neither angels nor rulers, nor present nor things to come, nor powers, nor any height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so again, if you were to ask the question, well, can I be a believer and be possessed by a demon? The answer would be no. When Christ resides in you, when the Holy Spirit dwells in you, giving you power, giving you authority over sin, over the devil, over his demons, you don't have to fear that somehow this is going to happen to you. But to be on guard, nevertheless, to say, how do I think through these things and how could I contribute in a God-honoring way if I were to somehow be a part of a situation like this? And this leads us to our third heading where we read number three, extolling Christ. Your next blank, growing in discernment in spiritual warfare. Verse 17, and this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And so, I mean, do you think anyone is going to try this again? Probably not. They're probably learning lessons in discernment of like, oh yeah, we better not go up against demon activity unless we're truly born again, fighting with the real power, the power of God. And I like how at, at least the true church, there was a positive outcome that came through this and that would be that fear fell upon them. The rest of verse 17 says, uh, says and fear fell upon them, uh, f- fell upon them all. 
And so we can appreciate there that, that this fear fell upon them as the church was heightened in their senses to the reality of the holiness of God. In fact, that idea of fear falling upon the church, it happened in Acts 5 when Ananias um, it breathed his last because he had lied to the Holy Spirit. And Acts 5, 5 says, and great fear came upon all who heard it. Later, same thing with, with uh, Sapphira. She died and it says, and great fear came upon the whole church. Acts 5.11, and all who heard about these things. And so, you know, we're just saying uh, that God confirms that he is in control of this situation, that God thwarts Satan's strategy of usurping Jesus's power, and he causes even the demon to advance God's kingdom in a Gentile world. There's something positive happening even through this negative. We're, li- we're building discernment. Building discernment. Not only that, the next blank says growing in desire to exalt Christ. We're growing in our desire through this passage to exalt Christ. The very end of verse 17, not only did fear fall upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. So that that means that Christ was magnified. It, It means that Christ's name was exalted that Christ's name was glorified. Uh, The demon may have beat up the seven sons of Sceva, but in that circumstance, in the way the church, the true church responded to it, Christ was extolled. He was exalted, and that ought to be the main takeaway. It's about Christ being exalted. In fact, turn with me to Luke 10, Luke 10, 17 through 20. This passage is certainly a good... um, passage to put together in our thinking here. Do you remember this story about the 72, Luke 10, 17? The 72 returned with joy. Jesus had sent them out and he had given them power and ability to go out and do some mission work. And listen to what happened. They went out, but they returned with joy. Verse 17, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. So we see the apostles and their close associates, 72, they go out and they have enormous victory and they're all excited about it. And that's okay. Like, they're excited. They saw that even the demons became subject to them in Christ's name. And what did Jesus say? What did Jesus say in response to that? He said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. So that's positive. He's like, yeah, you're right. Satan fell from heaven in a sense like this. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. So we're like, okay, Jesus is really encouraged by the spiritual power and the fight that was won. But then look at verse 20. It says, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. You see how Jesus brings it back to what really matters? He's like, look, I'm glad you guys had great success and you have power in my name, but don't rejoice in that. You just rejoice in the fact that you've been born again, that you've been saved by grace because at the end of the day, it's about salvation. And that ought to be a good uh, corrector of some of our thinking when we get lost and lunged out into the spiritual mindset of like, it's all about that. It's all about knowing Christ and rejoicing in the gospel. And that's what really matters. And Jesus teaches us that there in Luke 10, 20. And so our true rejoicing is to always be in Christ, people coming to know Christ. And this leads to our fourth heading, number four, eradicating evil. And your next blank says, coming clean. Verse 18, also many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. So how was Christ exalted? 
Well, there's evil coming out now. You got people saw what happened. They're starting to come clean, meaning they're, they're coming to confess. These, these believers wanted to get rid of any type of adherence to these seven sons of Sceva, the, the fear of God was what gripped their hearts, and they were ready to, to come clean. They were ready to confess. They were ready to bring out into the light that which had been hidden in darkness. The coming, they were coming, and they were confessing. They, they were divulging, which means they were disclosing or announcing their hidden sins. I wonder if something like that needs to happen in your life this morning, that you would see the power of God, and all of a sudden you'd be like, you know what, I want to make sure I'm right with God, and getting rid of the stuff that's keeping me from being one with the Lord. Maybe you're here this morning, and you've been dabbling in the occult. You say, Really? A church like Plasterita Bible Church, people in these chairs would be flirting around with a Ouija board or with Satan worship? Yeah, we have people coming to my office from this church who have struggled with uh, themselves or family members or extended family members and say, hey, this is going on. What are we to do? And I take them back to you like, well, here's what God's word says. And here's how you can promote Christ and preach and proclaim Christ. And the first thing is, is that individual who's struggling, are they born again? Where do they stand with God? That's where we always take them. Are, are you flirting with the idea of some kind of disaster in your life? And we can be reminded that we need to not conceal our transgressions, but to confess them and renounce them. Proverbs 28, 13 says, so that we can find mercy. And that's the, that's the uh, impact it had on the believers in Ephesus. We want to get this out. We want to get this out. In fact, the next blank says burning bridges, burning bridges. And a number, verse 19, of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and, and, and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver, you know, the value of 50,000 pieces of silver in today's currency would be about $12 million. So they, 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 they were ready to expose of these books or these incantations or these magic materials or whatever they had that was anywhere related to anything of the underworld, of the demonic world. After confessing their sin, it's wise to get rid of it. You know, I grew up in a kind of church that every time we went to youth group, we'd make that big bonfire on the last night. And, and, and we would get rid of stuff. And uh, I'm in a context now where sometimes that's mocked. You know, like, oh, throw another stick in the fire. And I'm just like, you know what? I kind of like that. I kind of like the fact that we'd be there and I'd see like kids bring out like all their cassette tapes of all of their like heavy metal music and they'd, they'd throw it up on the fire, you know? <laughs> It'd be like, yeah, yeah, let's burn it. You know, and part of me is like, uh, you know, what do you think? I'm like, you know what? If their heart is right and they're like, that's a stumbling block for me and I need to get rid of anything I own, anything I possess, that would somehow distract me, why not? Let's make a bonfire. You guys show up here Friday night, all right, right here in the back. We'll, we'll get the, Josh, you got the bonfire going? We'll, we'll build the fire. You bring it, and we'll burn it down. You know, I, I'm just saying, like, there's got to be some type of encouragement of the seriousness of getting rid of these things that would be hindering them from true spiritual growth. I got to move on. Number five, expanding God's kingdom Expanding God's kingdom, your next blank says the word of the Lord is increasing. So the effect again of this is God's kingdom is expanded. As we read in um, verse 20, it says, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. At the end of the day, evil will not win. The gates of hell will not prevail over Christ's church. It is the word of God which is living and active. 
And so we see God's word continue to grow and increase in Acts 6, 7. Again, in Acts 12, 24, the word of God increased and multiplied. God's word is increasing mightily in the good days and in the bad days because no matter what's happening, there's lessons learned, discernment that's built, and advancement of God's kingdom in all that he purposes to do. And so if the word of the Lord is increasing and also prevailing, then your last blank says the word of the Lord is prevailing. It's not only increasing, but it is prevailing. Again, it has inherent strength, the word of the Lord. Notice it's the word of the Lord. It's the Bible. It's the scriptures being clearly read and taught and applied in the situation that's giving inherent strength. The word of God is supreme. The word of God is dominant. The word of God is powerful. All the satanic forces of evil will not prevail because God's word overpowers it. The bold preaching of the gospel and the confirming miracles that were done, the defeat of the exorcist, all of this in Acts 19 resulted in the exaltation of Christ and of Scripture. That's really what it's all about. Not to get so hung up in what about exorcism. It's like, well, what about Christ? What about the glory of God working in this situation to show his power and his gospel and his triumph over all? And so this morning, we can look at that take-home section and say, look, are we fighting evil on our own? Because if we are, it's going to result in a miserable loss. Or are we fighting evil in God's strength because that results in a mighty win? Number two, rejoice not in your victory over Satan, but in your security in heaven through the gospel. Again, Luke uh, talked about that. And then confess your sin and burn the bridges in your life to experience contentment and growth in Christ. Just a few take-home points that you can think about, talk about as you um, have dinner together, as you enjoy the day together, as you fellowship together. If you're here today and you don't know Christ and something in this message kind of freaked you out a little bit, we're here to talk to you. There's no fear. There's no shame. If you're like, you know what? I'm kind of struggling through some of this. After the last song, we have a few people right here. We'd love to talk to you. We want to talk to you first and foremost about coming to Christ. If you're here and you don't know the Lord Jesus, this is a perfect day for you to come and surrender yourself, to confess your sin, and to believe in Christ. And if you're here and we can serve you in any way, again, after the last song, a few people right here to minister to you. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to look at this text. There's a lot of interest as we want to better understand this particular narrative because of the extreme nature of what we've read. I pray that you would help us to be grounded in the Scripture not only from this text, but as we've looked at a number of cross-references to help us have a true biblical framework and approach to this particular topic. We thank you for the extraordinary miracles that were done by the hands of Paul and even by the apron and the handkerchief that you used as an object to represent God's power in and through this situation, God. And I just pray that you would help us to build discernment. I pray that you would help us to be balanced, to be biblical, Help us to have answers from Scripture. Help us not to be afraid to enter into the fray of spiritual warfare. Help us to not try to outperform ourselves, so to speak, but rather to come back to your word that prevails. Come back to your word that instructs. Come back to your word that frees us from enslavement to sin. And come back to your word that shows us the power that we have in spiritual warfare to stand firm with the word of God in our hands and the armor of God on our spiritual person. So be exalted as we think about these things and discuss them together. And as we sing this last song, may we sing out to worship you with all of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.